I would say go deep, go deep in something. I think sometimes we, you get a million people telling you like, sign up for this lead service, do this. And I would say, pick something, pick something you're passionate about that you enjoy doing and go deep there. For us, that was hyperlocic farming. Like we love neighborhoods. We love communities. We loved being a part of the community we were in. And we just learned everything we could about it. We understood the stats. We got to know our neighbors and we, that, that created massive business opportunity well beyond the residential real estate brokerage side. Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent, and welcome to Success Calls. This month's top agent is Kimber lovett Minkiti with Keller Williams in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the call, Kimber. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate the ask. Hey, Kimber, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we talk about what you're doing today in your business, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into the business. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my background is in social work. So I was a uh, high school social worker and then um, ran the social the counseling program for the Archdiocese of Washington. So I'm here in Washington, D.C. And so it really, you know, I sort of knew from a very early age that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to um, to have an impact on my community, both my parents, my mom was a teacher, my dad was a fireman. So I kind of was like, I'm not going to do either of those things, but I'll go be a social worker. Um, so I did that really for um, the early part of my career. And um, yeah, so then my husband, Bo, started the real estate company. We actually met at a nonprofit. We were both working at a nonprofit um, here in Washington, D.C. at that college summit that services low-income high school seniors and helps them first generation getting into college. So that was really a lot of the work that we did. Um, and then that sort of transitioned into to the beginning of a real estate career. How long were you in the social work field? Um, I was in the social work field for about five years. So I came out of college, went straight to grad school, worked while I was in grad school, um, and then transitioned in my mid-20s into real estate. And why did you decide to, to move from social work into real estate? Yeah, so, so my husband and business partner, Bo, um, led first. And so it really started a, as an opportunity. He actually took a sabbatical. Uh, the nonprofit required that you use your time. So he took a couple weeks off, got his real estate license, and sold a couple houses as, in a, as a part-time agent during that time and really saw the power that uh, the residential real estate brokerage business could have to create cash flow that would allow him to impact a community. And ultimately, that was he wanted to do development. And so he really wanted to be able to buy up some of the properties that were in the neighborhood that he lived um, and have a bigger impact on them. And so residential real estate sort of became the catalyst for that. And about two years in, he was had had a lot of success as an agent and, and building and rehabbing properties um, and launched the first Keller Williams brokerage in Washington, D.C. And during that time, um, we had actually just bought a 21-unit condo building in Northeast D.C. This is in 2007. So if anybody knows what was happening in the real estate market in 2007. So I got my license as a part-time agent to really just support um, those, the finishing of those condos and to lead our residential sales business while Bo focused on development and the launch of the broader brokerage. Huh. Okay. Very good. So um, 
you got, he got in on the development side. Did he do the development side the, the whole time and kind of had his license uh, as the broker part at, as a, in a part-time position just so that he could do the investing? Is Was that how he worked his I way? I think originally it? that was the plan, right? It was like get a license so I could have access to the MLS and see all the property. And then because of the age group, right, he was in a world where lots of his friends were buying homes, buying their first homes. And so was rookie of the year as a part-time agent, right? Like he just had a lot of people in the network and started to see that that actually was a great way for him to generate additional income that would allow him to build the portfolio and actually do the development work that he wanted to do. But really right from the beginning, right? He was selling a house and buying a house. Um, that was certainly for us as we, you know, we have another part of our business today that's a, a large development company here in Washington, D.C. And so that started as one, one single family home and it's now launched into a larger portfolio in D.C., Maryland, and Massachusetts and Virginia. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and so, yeah, you've got all created a, an empire here now. So uh, how long have you been licensed? I got licensed in 2007, so about 13 years. About 13 years. And how about Bo? How long has he been? 2004. So he was three years before me. So 16. Yeah. Okay, great. And so um, my understanding is that you've, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit, but you've created yeah. this empire. Let's move to today. And it has a lot of branches. And my understanding is you're running the brokerage side and he's running yeah. the development side. Do I have that part correct? Yes, he definitely still has his hand in brokerage. That's, he definitely has a pet. We have seven market centers. Um, so he still does a lot of, he's, he's definitely like our business development wizard. So he definitely still uh, is involved in the brokerage business. I run a lot more of the day-to-day -day operations of it and the broader Maryland, D.C. Um, franchise. So there's 19 offices um, of Keller Williams. And so I also run that as well in addition to our offices. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. We're going to dive into the brokerage side, but I, we have yeah. this unique opportunity that you, you, you worked into this development side, and there are people that have that aspiration that are listening. So could you tell us just a, a little bit more about where is that now today? What does the development side look like? Yeah, I mean, our development, and maybe I'll back up because I think um, it really started for us in investing in the neighborhoods where we were working that we knew really well. So we built a very, still today, have a very hyper local sales team. And that allowed us to really understand the market at a high level and to get access to property uh, often before they would hit the market. And when we had a seller who wanted to move quickly and didn't maybe want to go on the market or we saw a great opportunity, we would we use, we leverage that to purchase it. And I think so often agents have their short list of developers, and then they just start calling people because they've got this amazing deal. And they don't realize that that could be their amazing deal. And so when we think about how our wealth has grown, it's really grown because um, two things. One, we, we are both working in the nonprofit world and we froze our salaries for the first like seven years of the business. We continued to pay ourselves at our nonprofit salaries. We didn't change our salaries when we started the business. And that allowed us to take all of the additional cash that we were, that we were making and reinvest it in buying assets. And that's allowed us to build a large portfolio of properties. We both have um, buy and hold. We have stuff that is much more longer term uh, commercial properties. We have multifamily properties. Uh, we have a larger portfolio today, but it really 
I think sometimes when you see that, you're like, wow, okay, that, that seems like a lot, right? You've got a million square feet and $100 million in assets. And it also started with one single family home. Yeah, I, that we I, bought I, when we were 25 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, I heard a whole bunch in there. I got to kind of dissect a little bit. Um, I heard that I wanted to get to the end point of where you are today. And, and I heard that you have a, a, a million square feet of property and a hundred million dollars in assets that you're controlling through your portfolio. Uh, and that's incredibly impressive. Uh, did I get those numbers correctly? Yep. Yeah, that's amazing. And my question is this, I'm not sure how to phrase it, but do you still have a social bend to your investing? Are you doing this for a social purpose? Are you doing it simply for your own wealth and, and uh, income for the future and, and retirement? What's the, the driver there behind all this development? Yeah, I love that question. You know, our mission of the organization is to transform lives, careers, and communities through real estate. Um, and then almost all of our development work is happening in core neighborhoods uh, that often are not seen or perceived as the most valuable class A um, locations of a city. And so what we've found is that when you can go in and shine a light on core assets of communities that have value, both the community and the asset, um, and bring them back to market, bring them back to market, bring them back to market with sustainable tenants, that that's actually um, a, a opportunity for everybody. And so I think when you, for us, we do see a social bend to that because we will choo we choose very strategically the neighborhoods that we go into. And actually Maya um, Nadim runs our Empower Network, which is really a network of neighborhoods around the country that are saying, hey, we believe our neighborhood intrinsically has value. How do we marry together commercial assets, retail, business to really stand that up? And, and we're, we've launched that most recently in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, I am picturing in my mind that there are two facets to that side, and, and we're going to get off of development in a minute, but I just want to finish this up. Uh, I'm picturing in my mind two sides, that there's, there's kind of a shrewd investor side, and there's this social side, and you're combining the two. What I mean by that is when you invest in uh, lower price areas, you're going to get really great cash flows if you can make it work. So that's a great shrewd investment. And then you're marrying it with this concept of the social side that you're redeveloping that area and creating uh, an economy and a uh, money multiplier in that area as well. That's going to help all the people in that area. Is that the way you see it? Absolutely. And we, we're long-term investors. So we don't see our investments, particularly in neighborhoods. It's a 10-year plus trajectory. So we, we're definitely not, when you look at opportunity zones and a lot of those pieces, like we see it as a long-term play in communities that we are a part of, that we live in, that we are building businesses in, that we want to support the businesses that are coming in there. You know, for us, we've, we own um, a number of commercial properties in the area where we lived for many years and where our core business is. And we, we left one of our properties vacant for several a year plus to find what we thought would be the best tenant for the community. And so I think that that, you know, you have to marry together the business side, but also the social purpose, like what actually is in the best interest of the communities that we serve. Um, and then really supporting businesses to be able to sustain and thrive. So we look at a lot of local businesses that already are operating somewhere else in the city or somewhere else in the country, and that we think could have the opportunity to scale. Um, and that's another part of our work. That's fantastic. Thank you for walking me down that path. Uh, yeah. Very exciting. That's really both passion, so hopefully I do it justice. I know he, that, he could talk for more than two hours. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be and, another and I, episode. 
<laughs> and I know we had to decide whether we we're going to talk with you or Bo. And I do want to jump into the team and the brokerage side because uh, most people listening, that's what they want to hear about. But I wanted to touch base on on the other side, what the yeah. work that Bo is spearheading over there. You guys are working on together. Uh, and we do a lot of, I think a lot of people reach out to us because they're doing this with the hope to get to that. And um, I would definitely say, check out our Empower Neighborhoods uh, website. And there's a lot of information about that work that we're doing on on the neighborhood side. Oh, fantastic. Well, let's do this. Let's uh, now switch gears and go back into the, the team that you've built up over the years. Uh, I kind of get the impression that that's a, a money generator for you to, to launch into some of these other projects, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, so let's do that. Uh, let's talk about the team. I want to do uh, a quick uh, a quick rapid fire speed session here to get everybody up to speed with where you are on the team. So first question yeah. is, what is the name of the team? Yes, uh, MG Residential is the name of the team. And the Minkiti Group is our larger family of companies. So, but the residential team is MG Residential. So the Minkiti Group is uh, kind of an umbrella company, has multiple yeah. companies underneath it? Absolutely, that's exactly what it is, yep. Fantastic, and what's your service area for the team? So we service Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, and Maryland. So we service that whole D.C. metro market. Do you have to have three licenses then to, to operate there? You absolutely have to have three licenses and three sets of contracts. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a fun time. There's a lot of juggling going on. That's good. Yeah. Uh, and let's say, if you can already answer this, how long you've been licensed? I think we had 13 years. Yeah. Um, last year, how many homes did your team sell and what was the sales volume? Yeah, so the team sold just under 200 homes for 88 million in sales volume last year. Um, average price point right around 450. That's a little lower than the DC market, but we uh, the DC average. And you know, we've always had first-time home buyers have been a critical source always for us of our business, and we have not deviated from that as the business has grown. Do you recall what your GCI was last year? Yeah, it was just over two million, 2.2 million. Fantastic. Do you do you also remember what the percentage of buyers to sellers were last year? You know, I think it's closer to 60, 40. I think we might have given you another number, but you know, we, we actually are listing heavy um, by design. And so um, about 60% listings, 40% buyers. And I noticed that uh, we had some numbers from the past that seemed to be brought on the trend correct. But last year it seemed really heavy on listings, 83% on seller side. Do you think that might've happened? Yeah, I think it's closer to 60. Okay. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Um, and let's talk about uh, your best year. What year was it? How many units were sold sales volume GCI? Yeah, so 2016, um, we did over 100 million, I think close to 110 million, um, over 200 houses. Uh, so that was sort of the high watermark for us. It was a high year. It was also high sales, like just the 2016 market in Washington, D.C. and around the country were sort of a high mark. So for us, that's definitely, we see a trend in trajectory this year out being likely slightly off because of just everything happening, but really starting to go back and beyond that in 2021 20, and beyond. That's fantastic. In that year, 2016, I've got you had uh, 2.9 million in GCI. Yeah, just under 3 million. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I love the numbers. So I, I'll ask about that all day. Um, uh, your career, do you know how many homes you've sold and what the volume's been? Gosh, I know. And you, <laughs> I think it's over like 1,500 homes and a billion plus of volume. Um, so it's a wild, yeah, when I look at that, I'm like, is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> 
right. Has that really happened? <laughs> Y'all been busy. So I've got I've got twenty five hundred homes and a billion dollars in sales. That's amazing. So you're a billion dollar agent or a billion dollar group, uh, and that's fantastic. So people get an idea of what the team looks like today. Could you give us a quick overview, that big picture view of the team, and what we're looking for is positions, titles, what they're responsible for, and how many people are in that position. Yeah, and you know what I love about this, just some backstory. So Bo and I, like I ran the team directly in it, selling listings and houses until about two years ago when I transitioned into a new role in Keller Williams, uh, which is the regional director for Maryland and D.C. I did that. We transitioned the team, um, leadership of the team, and then most recently about um, – Eight months ago, we partnered with another um, powerhouse couple, Anthony and Lashika Mason. And so they merged in their residential team. We merged the teams together. And so they really lead, uh, they do lead the, the team today. Anthony um, serves as the sort of team leader, managing director. Shika serves as the sales director. Um, and so those two are sort of uh, the, the vision and leadership of the team. And they partner with Bo and I on that. Uh, then we have, and Anthony really does our, is our lead listing agent. And then we have a phenomenal core of um, agents who, you know, some of whom I've had the pleasure, including one who's, who's actually my very first client and a dear friend, um, who's um, one of the top agents on our team. And so then we've got about 10 agents that are on the team and then three, um, both from a marketing and social media and ISA, two transaction managers. Yeah, now that's, this is really interesting on a couple of fronts. So uh, one, the structure of the team today, the way I'm reading it is it's basically 10 and 10. You, you've got half of the people are agents and half the people are administration. Does that sound correct to you? It does. Just to, as a caveat, our transaction managers, we actually outsource transaction management. So they show up on the board like in, a, in an org chart as though they're part of the team. But what's nice is that's a variable um, expense for the team. So it's not a fully loaded salary, right? They, we, we, they support us per transaction. And it's something that I would highly encourage. You know, we built that inside the brokerage. So that's a program that your brokerage offers or um, there's definitely a number of, of outside services, MRE Select, there's different programs that allow you to make that, that piece of your business, especially if you're starting to grow and leverage, um, a more variable cost structure. Yeah, let's talk about that just for a quick second. So the idea of a fixed cost versus a variable cost. So a fixed cost is something you have to pay every month, no matter what, whether you sell a home or not. Variable cost, you're only going to pay if you sell or close a transaction. You and uh, what you're saying is it's smart to move over to that variable cost to keep your overall um, cash flow in line. You're only going to pay that out if you have a closing. However, in time, that variable cost can get bigger than the fixed cost, which is why people start to move back towards fixed. I just want to make sure all of our listeners knew where you're coming from. That's a pretty high level business concept. And boom, you got it right there in the team. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, now, I noticed that in the team, I see that you got five full-time agents, and then you've got five dual-career uh, agents. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so, you know, we we had for years just had, we ran a team with full-time agents. That's what we had. That was the structure. You need to really be committed to being a full-time agent. And we just had more and more people who we just had such respect for in the industry um, who were reaching out to us with an interest in joining the team who were part-time. And so actually it was Lashika's brainchild. She said, um, what if we created a cohort 
uh, of agents that really have a commitment to move to full-time so that they could get the support and leadership and resources of the team and almost run as a, as a small team really right beside. So they have their own team meeting. They do evening lead generation. Um, we call them our lift agents launching into full-time. And so they, um, they do a lot of our open houses. They act as our showing agents. They service a lot of our client events. Um, and it's great because they're sort of building up the reserves that are necessary to launch into full-time with the team. So yeah, so we've got five agents who are a part of that sort of sub-team within the team. How long have you been running that program, the Lyft program? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty new for us. That was something we launched earlier this year. So it's a 2020 initiative and we actually launched it just before COVID hit. Um, and it, in some ways it has been amazing because as people were either uh, furloughed or they were home or like they were able to really dig in and focus on their state business. And what we find is, you know, for part-time agents, sometimes it's hard to get the, get, just get, learn the systems, get the leads, really get a transaction. And once you get that first transaction, it's sort of like, right, everything else becomes a little bit easier because <laughs> you've just been like, okay, I can do it. I can take one all the way through. Um, sure. And so the team is really uh, a resource and then they provide a great resource to us in terms of just people, human capital. And it hasn't been running long enough to know whether it's going to be successful or not. For instance, I wanted to know, how are they yeah. doing? Are they producing? Are they generating revenue? How many people have gone from this part-time to a full-time position? But we won't have those answers for another year or two. We'll have to And get we really didn't time. do it. We, we, wouldn't, we, we always did an intensive training. Martin Weldon, um, who's been with us for a long time, has led our productivity internal training for the team. So every single agent on our team has been through an intensive training with them, but they were all had already made the commitment to be full-time. And that was really what we required because of just the structure of the team. We really needed a full commitment professionally to dig into it and for us to invest in them and them to invest in us. And so this, we were, we're um, yeah, I'll come back in a year and let you know what our stats look like. <laughs> when you set it up uh, for these folks in the dual career status, uh, do you give them a time frame for when they have to become full-time? Does it have to be within six months or a year? Or is there some kind of time frame they need to make the transition? Yeah, the path is really ideally six to 12 months. And so we really want them to see a path for themselves, both financially, what does that production need to look like for them to make the move so that it actually is a sustainable program that is a pipeline to the larger team. Very good. Uh, I want to also ask about this merge concept because that's, that's a kind of a unique situation as well. So you had two teams yeah. operating, yours and another. Uh, you brought them together. How long ago was that? That was in August of last year. So just it's less than a year, about a little over six months, nine months maybe that you've done this uh, yep. and you brought these two teams together. Um, I assume that the reason you wanted to do that was that you wanted to move into other positions and do other things uh, beyond the team and this freed up your time. Uh, how did it help the other side that wanted to merge in? Were they getting uh, access to your systems and your databases? Uh, how did that work? What were the benefits on each side? Yeah, and so uh, we actually did our first merger a few years ago with Brandon Green, who um, ran a team as well and is, is now one of our business partners and a national speaker trainer. And it was like in, in his world, he was ready to continue on and was leading actually our DC brokerage office. So he merged his team into our, um, to us at the time, uh, which is when we first changed the branding to MG Residential. And that was more of a database. So for us, it allowed us to expand the database. His agents came over. I continued to run the team. Um, and so that value created both sides. It allowed him to 
to monetize the database, but, and, and to continue to have a home for the agents that were on his team. And then we kind of merged in the system. So that was our first merger. Um, and so this merger together, I think um, one, certainly for us having that ability to have people that were really passionate about leading and operating a team. And they ran a very successful the number one team in, um, in Upper Marlboro in Maryland. And so I think for them, it also allowed them to, to grow faster. They really wanted explosive growth. They wanted to, to be able to bust through that 100 million mark. And this was an inorganic way to do that for them. And I think being able to merge our systems, um, we're both two couples that work together. And so we had a lot of alignment um, and just a, a friendship in that way. And so it's been been uh, a fun ride. <laughs> Let's, uh, if you don't mind, and you can tell me if you don't want to go down this path, but could you tell us how you structure that kind of thing? How does someone put together a merger between two teams? Yeah, I mean, I think there's all sorts. Of, I think the big thing you have to think about is like activity. Like, so what we realized was that we needed to first create the operational structure for the business, right? Meaning, um, what were what were the splits to the agents? What were the roles that we were going to pay salaries for? And then what were going to be the partner roles? And so what what happens for Anthony and Lashika is that they actually serve roles on the team, right? Anthony is the lead listing agent on the team and also the partner model. And I think that's where sometimes people get it uh, misstep is that they only exist at the partner level and then they actually aren't monetizing the activity that somebody's doing and then may in the future be replaceable inside the team. And so that was um, one critical piece of how we looked at that. We first built out the model and we said, these are the economic structure. Now, when we build the org chart, who's going to sit where? Are we actually going to, we, we're, we're the owners, but are we going to sit inside of it? Um, and we just pulled everything together. One of the things that we did that I think was really effective is we both took really hard looks at our expenses. And we said, where can we cut expenses? Where do we get um, economies of scale? Where do we get things that we can cut? We don't need all these databases. Like, what can we really leverage by coming together and slashed on both of our businesses significantly, 40 to 50% of our expenses before we merged the partnership together. Um, and then that allowed us to come out and create like a brand new book of expenses, a cost of sales, right, that we could then launch for the business. The, uh, how did you handle the ownership portion? So did you create a new LLC and you each then have some new percentage of ownership? Uh, you had to split the roles out between who's acting in the business and who's just an owner now. Mm -hmm. um, how did you put that together? Do you have to create a new co contract and an agreement, a new LLC to give us just some ideas there? Yeah, so we created um, a, definitely a partnership agreement between us of what that looks like. We actually used and identified a third party to do all of our accounting and so that we would have really clear um, a view into the books. We opened a brand new bank account so that the entity had its own um, standalone piece. And then that reports back out for each of us, right, as partners in the business and distributions. So that was sort of like the mechanics of a structure, we really said, we really want to set this up so that the, the business MGR exists. And then we are the business owners of it and then are accountable, right? We have an accountability financially and otherwise to, to the results that we're driving. Do you have a, a parachute agreement? If things don't work out, is there a, somebody can rip the cord and yeah. the, everything yeah. goes back to where it was or how do, how's that work? Yeah, I mean, I think even for your agents on your team, right, if you're building out a team, you want to always think about as much as we, it's like the prenup, right? You, you hope you never have to use it, but you, you want to know that you've already discussed it. Um, and for terms of like, what's the database going to look like? How does it get divided back out? Um, and so, yeah, I think you, you have to, ha you, you have to, right, from a business standpoint, have to have that conversation up front um, on the, in the event 
that it's it doesn't work <laughs> sure sure but this and uh, okay this is really neat so let me ask you one other question you said that the the other team is it anthony and, and leticia did i get that right leshika leshika i'm sorry leshika yep. Uh, you said that they uh, they want to drive. They want to get up to 100 million. Is the reason that the the team is a little bit heavier on the um, admin side because they have a, a goal to grow out the agent side and and make it much bigger? Yeah, I mean, I think we may have. So we've got three full time people that are there every day that are committed. Lashika flexes. She does both admin. She leads the op, the admin team, but she also sells. So really, it's three people that are like full time on salary for the team. And then we've got the two people that are transaction managers that are variable, and then Lashika. So it's really, you know, if you look at six, um, but one, you know, Lashika is a leader on the team and does a little bit of both. She leads that division. Um, so it's not as heavy as I think maybe we had originally given. <laughs> 200 closings from 10 agents and f half of them are part-time. That's Those are pretty productive agents, right? So initially I was thinking two, 20 closings apiece, which is pretty good, but it's actually a bit higher than that for those full-time folks, I assume. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we've got... We've got a lot of listings pumping through. So Anthony um, and Virginia Gregoff, who are who is also our lead listing agent, we're, they're they're carrying a lot of that production and listing activity. Let's move into uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about how you're generating the business, uh, how the leads are coming in uh, yeah. for the business. And you've mentioned uh, several times this idea of hyper local, and yeah. I assume that that's going to play into what we're talking about here, but let me just go down my normal path. And that is that 70% yeah. of your business or so is coming from repeat and referrals. And so let's dive into that. That's your database. How big is the database? Uh, how many past clients? How many sphere of influence? Give us some, some basic numbers there. Yeah, I mean, we've got a big database. You think for us, you know, we've, it starts 2004, 2006. So we've got 6,000 plus um, names that are inside of that world when you think of past clients and sphere and you know hyper local for us was um, was really the focus right like that was always we were a farming based business we lived in a neighborhood we wanted to go really deep and so that meant that we were creating both sphere farm and past clients like all in the same circle so when you look at our database you're gonna see lots of people who will say like oh Brooklyn farm uh, past clients because like, because they tie it all the way across and that was really uh, I think critical to our business growth okay so uh, this is a big data this is your entire database then uh, includes some farming folks um, mm -hmm. uh, like a geographic farm I assume or was it the people yep. farm or geographic farm uh, geographic okay and those were the areas that you wanted to work uh, mm -hmm. And so if we were to break out the 6,000, uh, how many of those are past clients? Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Um, you're probably about 2,000 of those that are past clients. About 2,000 past clients. Okay, so perfect. And then uh, the geographic farm. How many do you think are the, from the geographic farm? It might be another 1,000, 1,500. 
Andrea, that our geographic farm, because you think about, you know, we, that includes people that we've added from open houses, uh, that we've added from client events. We do a number of, of geographic farm-based events, and we're tracking all of that inside of that. Um, and some of that, even from door knocking, you know, our goal in door knocking is just to get, um, get if you can get a nurture where somebody's excited to learn more and get information and you get their, um, you know, a name and a, an email address, then that feels, that's a win, right? Because now they're in our database. We can keep informed with them and, and update them on what's happening in the neighborhood and real estate. Do you break out your database into groups uh, of your uh, priority um, uh, of, of people that are more likely to send you business as an example, uh, your top 25 or top 50 referral group, or do you do yep. any kind of separation that way? Or is it just, you give everybody the same thing? No, you definitely have a top 100. Each of our agents have a top 50 to 100 of their personal sphere and database. Um, so that that's like requirement for all of our agents. They've really got to have that core group of people that they're following up with, they're staying in a relationship with, um, that they're, that, that that's where they're getting the bulk of their business from, for sure. Very good, thank you. Let's talk about uh, what you're doing on an annual basis to stay in front of this group and how that, that you're, that's being nurtured and then resulting in these repeat and referrals. So can you tell us what your annual marketing plan is to your past clients and sphere of influence? Yeah, I think the, you know, and Gary talks about this in The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, which is one of the books that we really was anchored, right, for how we create our business and this idea of like a 33-36 touch plan. Like, how do you stay consistently in touch with your database? And some of those, right, were very early on, even before our current, um, like the command resources that we have in the CRM, was just neighborhood nurtures. How could you stay in touch with people with information on a, on a monthly basis that was just sort of uh, information about their property? And you could even do that as simple in, an, in a bright search. Like, it, it doesn't have to be like um, super complicated. You just want to create something that's automated that you can stay in touch with your, um, with your database and your clients. And, and that's information that's relevant to them. We also did a newsletter. So that newsletter went out um, as well once a month. So that sort of accelerated us pretty quickly to 24 touches. Um, and then you think about like either a birthday touch, an anniversary touch, and then we're doing events. You know, we at least have a quarterly event that we are um, being able to reach out to them on. And our events, you know, sometimes people are like, well, how many people were at that? And those have obviously grown significantly over the years. But in the early years, the events were also just a great way, and they still are, to sort of have a reason to call your database and your sphere that's of value. So we, um, this will be the first year in like eight years that we've not done our summer movie night series. So we literally take a, a big um, piece of lawn and in, in right in the heart of our farm. And three times in the summer, it's like, it's one of my favorite things to do. We just get out. We we have a, we rent a big screen. Everyone comes out. We have food trucks and you just have a, an awesome family movie night in the summertime. So again, that allows us to call everybody in our sphere, let everybody in the neighborhood know that we're doing it. Um, and so you end up with like three touches for one event. So those quarterly touches all really allow you like three touches around each one. Um, so yeah, so then you just, that's how we stay in touch with them. And that doesn't always, you know, I think for agents early on, they're sort of like, well, I don't have the resources to plan an event. What kind of event would I plan? Um, and we, in the beginning, we actually looked to partner with local organizations and the work that they were doing. Uh, for example, our local civic association had started to organize like a, a yard sale day. A lot of neighborhoods do this, right? Where they, all the neighbors come out on the same day and they all do their yard sales. 
And we just reached out and said, hey, can we help you? Could we distribute flyers? Could we actually, we started making, which was just, um, I think it has been awesome for us for years, these neighborhood uh, yard sale packages. And we literally would take our folders that are branded to us. We would put in a, a mailer about the neighborhood stats, but we'd also literally, we'd just buy like a stack of those little stickers you use for, um, for yard sales, but we would only give them two sheets. So it saved costs. We would put in a Sharpie and then we would even give them a, a yard sale directional just that we would print on large paper, but it was branded to us because we knew if they like woke up Saturday morning and they forgot they didn't have poster board, then we would actually see our signs all over the neighborhood with directionals pointing to their yard sale. So it just, again, like we didn't organize that. We didn't do a lot of the heavy lifting, but we intersected at places that got us belly to belly with um, potential customers and clients. And who better to talk to than people who want to have a yard sale? Because maybe they're clearing out for something else. <laughs> so just, I would say, look for those opportunities in your neighborhood, even if it's something as simple as a book club, where you can, um, you can get to know people and, and not have to necessarily organize every event yourself. Tell us more about the event ideas that you have. So I've heard movie night, I've heard a yard sale, a huge neighborhood yard sale, and uh, even a book club. What other events have you put on over the years that have worked well? Yeah, we do a clothing swap. Um, that's one of our major anchor events that we do. And that's just for, um, for families. Really, a lot of our events uh, grew organically out of our own needs. So like if we, I have four kids. And so the idea of being able to swap clothes at the different seasons was a really great idea. And then from a social impact, we have a lot of um, organizations in our community that service, you know, better women's shelters, the organizations that support just low income families. So it, we allow, we go, we do porch pickups. Um, we have a physical space and office space that's in our neighborhood, but you could use a library. We've used a church basement before. Um, and then we, we, allow people to volunteer with us. So we get to know volunteers in the community. They sort the clothes with us and then we open it up. And literally the, there, we have sometimes have had lines of a hundred people and it's, you don't have to donate to the swap to participate. We include families that, um, you know, for whom that that's, that's a huge resource for them to be able to come and there's no limit. People just come and grab clothes and we always have tons left over that we pack up and donate. So we do that four times a year. Um, so that's one of the ones. And we do a big trolley tour. Some of our events are large and are harder probably to execute if you're a, just a solo agent or a small team. But they've almost all been born out of a community um, need or the community saying, we really want this. Um, and then we've just sort of come alongside them and said, can we support you in making this happen? Right. You were mentioning they it may already be existing like those yard sales and you just go yeah. in and try to help them make it bigger. That's right. Or just leverage it. It's a, like we, we have a copy machine. So for us, it wasn't a big deal to make 100 copies. But for, the, for an organization that's all volunteer run, that was a big expense. And they loved it. So we, we literally, those are all in-kind benefits, right? We actually use our postcard that month to advertise the yard sale. So that's our postcard with our branding, our name. They can call us to register for the yard sale if they don't have internet. They didn't have email, which years ago, like we had lots of our elderly um, folks in the neighborhood that didn't have an email or internet access. So they wanted to call us to register for the yard sale. So then we got to talk to our neighbors and then we would just go online and plug their information in. So I think look at ways that you can um, come from contribution and, and support the communities in which you live and work. The schools are amazing, right? There's so much stuff you can do in the schools, hopefully when everyone's back in schools. Um, but we, we also leverage that. I always say, you know, we never do an event that we're not going to be present for. So we're never just going to write a check um, and not show up. If we're not going to be there, we're not going to put our name in a, in a you know, in an ad book. Um, we, you need to be present to get the benefit and of what you're contributing to. Be belly to belly. I heard you say earlier, right? Yeah. Get belly to belly. Yep. <laughs> 
you also mentioned the power of the event is three contacts uh, for one event. You're, you're staying in touch with your people. It, the reciprocity you're giving, they want to give something back. Um, talk about the invitation. That's super powerful, right? That you're inviting somebody to an event. How are you inviting your group to the event? Are you doing it by a phone call, email, a postcard? What are you doing to get the word out and make that touch? All of what you said. So we will lead with an email. We will follow it up with a phone call. And for that top 100 list, they'll get a postcard for our big events. Um, so there's those three touches. We're finding though today um, and, and really for the last year plus, that text message is a powerful resource, right? So any of these, um, you know, you can use Twilio or any of the things that sort of allow you to mass text or just individual plug it in and text away. You know, we're finding even today just to stay in touch that people are overwhelmed sometimes with just the amount of phone calls and how much time they're spending on the phone or on a Zoom video that if you shoot them a text, we get, you know, we did something just yesterday and, you know, I think she, the agent made 40 calls and got one response, but she sent those same 40 people text messages and got 20 responses. So, oh, wow. yeah. And then social, of course, social media is a huge part of our, um, you know, we'll have the event, but we'll also do it as, as an event on social media that people can check off, they can check in that they're going to come, that they can also invite additional people to. Um, so that also becomes a, has been a huge part of our, of our marketing. So you got the invitation phase and you just talked about that. You have the event itself. You can meet people belly to belly. Do you have a post event thing that you do? Do you send something out saying, Hey, here's what happened. Here's the people that were there. You post pictures on Facebook or something like that. All the above. You're also, you know, for like an event, if it's a, a more curated event, like a seminar, um, you're going to follow up with everybody. You know, you might only have a 50% attendance rate and that's okay, right? That they registered for a first time homebuyer seminar, 50% showed up, 50% didn't. That's great. You follow up with a 50%, letting them know that you miss them. Um, you'd love to be able to still meet with them and connect and get them the information. That's a great follow up. We do that for our events as well. And then for those that attended, you've, you've already got your follow up, right? So the, the power is in the follow up whether they came to the event or not. And then of course, yeah, social media. At the event, you're posting about it. After the event, you're posting about it just to kind of get that energy and excitement up about what happened. Very good. Let's go back to one of the earlier things. We just talked a lot about events, which is excellent. Let's go back to the one of the first things you said, which is you want to send statistics out to the folks once a month that it connects with them. So how are you doing that? Are you setting them up on a, a drip system in your MLS or what exactly are you sending out to them and how'd you set it up? Yeah, so uh, early on, we would just be set them up on an MLS search, which was super basic and not very sophisticated, but you set them up on their search criteria, even if it was just somebody that we met at an open house. That setting them up on a search where they're getting properties that are specific to um, where you met them at or where their property is that you can follow up on. And for some set of our sellers that we would meet with that maybe were a year out and they actually were like, I don't want to be spammed with lots of properties. We actually would set up a search and just for ourselves so that we would be triggered to have a follow up with them if in fact like uh, the property around the corner went on the block that you were just attuned to the data that would be relevant to them. So I think that relevant data today more than ever, I think consumers are not interested in like every property that's around, like they want us, they want neighborhood specific information. If they're looking at a second home, whatever it is you want to create. And there's lots of services at KW. We have a, a neighborhood nurture through our command program and that's super easy. You set people up and then they just, you know, once a month or twice a month, they get an update on what's happening in their, um, in their hyper local neighborhood. 
second part of the plan is the newsletter, the monthly newsletter. Is it a physical newsletter or an email newsletter? It's an email newsletter, and we've really backed up from it. We actually haven't been sending it the last few months um, because we found, back to that point before, that people were less interested, because we service three states, uh, were less interested in information that wasn't relative to them. So if they bought in Northern Virginia, they weren't really interested in what was happening in Montgomery County. Um, and so then we could have more generic data, but then if you're a seller and everything in there is about interest rates and it's a great time to buy, we just found that it was, it's become harder to customize um, to what, our, what we think our clients want to hear about. So I think that's an opportunity. I think we're going to see the industry continue down that path of giving the consumer more relevant, pertinent data to what they want to, to see. And then we'll put, we still post those articles. We still blog about them. Like we'll still have content, but then it, the con, a consumer can consume what they're interested in versus getting a newsletter and feeling like, well, nothing in this is really relevant, relevant to me. Okay. So uh, because the newsletter may be too generic, you're, you're going to start moving away from that. Have you thought about making multiple specific newsletters to send out to these different groups? We have. Yeah. I think that's actually likely the future of what we're going to see is more hyper-local, maybe not every neighborhood, but maybe even if you're covering a big area um, to be able to focus on that, even buyer and seller focused, right? We even, you even want to think about the voice you're taking from a social standpoint, media standpoint, who are you speaking to? Who's your audience? And not just who's your audience, but who are you trying to attract? And are, is your content uh, speaking to that person? Hyper-local. What does that word mean to you? For us, you know, I think we were one of the early people that said, hey, we've got a hyper-local business. And for us, that means that you're going deep in an area, either geographically or people, right? You can have a hyper-local in terms of what, what, you're, what that demographic of people that you're serving is. If you work with seniors or you work in a, um, you know, with even a local, like an association, an area. Um, but for us, it's been about geography. And so it means that you're, you're really wrapping around not just the like buy and sell of that area, but that you understand the businesses that are that service that area, that you're really, a, you're really an advocate, right? You, you lead the marketing. Um, you know, we designed um, a Brookland, a video, we, we literally produced a video about why you'd want to live in this neighborhood, which talked about community, which talked about development, because we really want, because we really find ourselves being um, the promoters of a community. And I think that's hyper-local. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, you've, you've described a lot for us today. Thank you so much. Uh, a question someone is going to have, and we're talking about the team, is uh, are you profitable? Yeah. You know, I think you have to look at, we were massively profitable, um, 40, 50% when I was a sales agent. And I think when you want to look at profitability, you want to understand how the rainmaker is booking their production. So when they say they're 40% profitable, you want to know, does that mean that you took a commission? Were you, did you take the agent commission or is that reflecting of, of the production that you're doing, right? Um, and if you're throwing all your commissions in that, that's good to know, but that means you under, understand if, if you're not going to do that in the future, who's going to do it, right? So when you look at our business today, you know, we run a 15 to 20% profit margin, but, I, but Bo and I don't sell in the business. And so that was okay for us, right? Because we needed to be able to leverage um, the business's previous success to have it continue to grow and create opportunity for other people. So I think you want to ask, sometimes you're going to ask like, does the, do the, um, 
do the owners take a draw from the business? How are they paid? And then how is that money reflected? Because sometimes even today, which I love that question, um, and we need to be asking it more because we see sometimes you see people on the stage and they run these big businesses, but they actually aren't very profitable. Um, our highest profitability percentage-wise was, of course, when I was selling every day. And that's when you're going to be most profitable. <laughs> and if you're going to actually bring other people in, it's why I think it's important to, it's what we did in the beginning of the partnership, right? We established what the splits were going to be for the team. And then we paid ourselves those splits when we were doing activity for the team so that it was clear what the profitability that was left over was the partner profitability that we could replace ourselves. We weren't setting up a business where we actually could never step out of it. And that's actually what often happens. And then the rainmaker hires somebody and doesn't understand why they did double the production and made less money. Well, because they didn't actually set up economics that would allow them to step out of the business. If that's your goal, right? Yeah, that's, that's really good. That's, that's uh, very powerful. And I, I appreciate you bringing that. And you bring up a good point. And First of all, you've been able to achieve the seventh level, right? You've been able to step out of the business and do a, something else, and the team continues to run by itself. I want to point that out, and that the profitability is going to be lower when that happens. You mentioned also those splits, and I forgot to ask you earlier about splits, so let's ask right now, how have you set up or structured that compensation for your agents on the team? It's a question everybody has when they're thinking about putting a team together. Yeah, I think cost of sale matters. And I would say like, I would definitely, MRA is a good resource. There's other resources, but I think MRA is a good one, the millionaire real estate agent that just sort of walks you through the economics of a millionaire team. Um, and I think we'll see MRA too coming out here shortly, which sort of doesn't actually change it all that much, which is sort of surprising. Um, but I think you've got to look at, you know, you should be the listing agent on your team, right? Like that's, if you're going to be giving up that role, you got to look real. That's where cost of sale gets really out of whack for people. What's your buyer production and what's your listing production. So I think setting it up, we definitely have split it that way. The splits on our team are not the same for listings and buyers because we, we spend a lot more dollars and there's a lot more risk when you take a listing. The dollars that go out the door the second you put the sign in the ground. So just understanding what your cut run at a 70% cost of sale on their splits. Well, what does that mean, right? You're probably running at a 10 or percent or less profit margin because you paid your, you're paying your agents to be on your team. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> uh, so Kimber, what is the, what splits have you set up for your buyer agents and your listing agents? Yeah, so we have a scaled split model. You know, ours actually, we have senior agents on our team. So if you're coming in and you need more support in the beginning of the team, it's an adjusted split. So we're everywhere, we go from 40 to 55%, depending on how long you've been in the business, how many units you've sold. Because I think what we found was that you do need to incentivize those on your team who are um, who have been on your team for a while and are producing at a higher level. So you are, our agents that do more production have a higher split. So, so Kimber, is there a difference in the rate if a, an agent is working with a buyer than a seller? You said it's 40 to 45%. Would it be less if they were working with a seller? Yes, it is. And part of that's just because there's more expense to the team. And so Absolutely. we calculate those expense. We send marketing materials out. We do geographic farming. We do a lot to pull in seller clients. And so we've, that split is reflective of the additional dollars that go out on behalf of our agents to, to pull that business in. And what's the range for the seller side if they work with a seller? 30 to 50. It's similar 30 to 50. range, but it just depends on the agent, where the lead came from. We actually did make some adjustments to incentivize our agents for, for leads that they generate on their own. Fantastic. Thank you for walking us through that. 
Uh, Kimber, I, this has been a lot of fun, and I have a question for you. I'm curious, what drives you? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think when you you got to understand like purpose in terms of like what what actually at the end of the day, like why do you do why do you do all this stuff? Um, and I think for us, the power, particularly in the today's climate um, of what's happening in the backdrop of our country, we know that real estate is the number one predictor, like the ability to generate wealth. And our business has been um, really both impacted. Our lives have been completely changed on the power of, of wealth and that real estate creates. And I think we have an obligation, Bo and I feel very strongly in that, to make sure other people can walk down that path, both in the careers that they're creating and even just home ownership. Like we know what home ownership can do, um, what investing can do. And so that's 100% of what drives me every day that I think um, we, you know, as somebody who's benefited from the power of um, that real estate creates, that I both from a philanthropic standpoint and just a mentorship, leadership, that I, that's how we change things, right? Like we change things systemically by the conversations we have and the actions we take. And we also change things and we change power by, by money. So that's, that's a, today more than ever. That is why um, we continue to do what we do. Fantastic. Kimber, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would say go deep, go deep in something. I think sometimes we, you get a million people telling you like, sign up for this lead service, do this. And I would say, pick something, pick something you're passionate about that you enjoy doing and go deep there. For us, that was hypologic farming. Like we love neighborhoods. We love communities. We loved being a part of the community we were in and we just learned everything we could about it. We understood the stats. We got to know our neighbors and we, that, that created massive business opportunity well beyond the residential real estate brokerage side. Um, so I would say, don't look for the shiny object. If you love cold calling, cold call away. Get those expiring withdrawals and go for it. If you hate calling, leverage your sphere. Talk to people in your world. Like, do open houses. There are things that you can do. But I would say, seek out mastery. Don't just say, like, I did open houses for a week. I didn't get anybody. I'm going to switch to this. And I find I see agents do that a lot. They look for that guy over there did that and he's successful. I'm going to go try it. And then they try it for a week and it didn't work and they move on. Like even with farming, we say you've got to commit a minimum of 12 months, 12 months. Like you got to budget for it. You got to commit to the activities around it. And that's where you get success. Excellent. Well, Kimber, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? Yeah, you know, I think this business, um, there's massive opportunity in it. And I think find a place where you are supported and in your larger goals. And I would always say, like, think about, you can be anywhere. Gary Keller tells us you can be anywhere you want in five years, anywhere you want. And so where do you want to be? Write it down and tell people about it. Find some account find somebody that can hold you accountable, even in the small things, right? Like I'm committed to getting up every day and doing this activity. Um, and that's where I think that's where results really show up. So look at who you're around, who you're surrounding yourself with, set a vision and charge toward it. Uh, very good, Kimber. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Kimber. Well, that's it for now. Thanks for joining us on Success Calls. Keep moving forward. Bye. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV. 
real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.